So we're going to start the book of Titus tonight, and God willing, we'll actually finish the book of Titus because it's a short book. And I will repeat the introduction that I tried to get through last week. Titus was one of two young men that Paul took on in ministry, the other, of course, being Timothy. And if you read Titus and Timothy, there's a lot of similarities between the two letters because Paul is writing pastoral letters to guys that are in charge of churches, and he's giving them practical advice. So things like, these are the qualifications of an elder, this is how you deal with dissension, you know, those kinds of things are sort of common to both letters. I'll read you from Wikipedia, which is, of course, everybody knows, a very authoritative source. But there's some interesting things about Titus. Paul apparently uh, sent Titus from... Ephesus to Corinth with full commission to remedy the fallout produced by Timothy's delivery of 1 Corinthians and Paul's painful visit. Now those are both referred to in 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, as you remember, was kind of a starchy pastoral letter where you got stuff going on in that church that you need to get sorted out. Well, apparently, as is wont to happen in churches, there were some noses that got severely bent out of joint. And Paul sent Titus there to smooth things over, and he was apparently so successful that Paul then used Titus again to deliver 2 Corinthians. Now, there's an intermediate letter, which Paul refers to as the painful letter that has been lost. We don't know what that was, but I sort of get the impression he had 1 Corinthians, which was kind of starchy. He got some blowback, and then he really got starchy. And Titus was sort of his emissary, if you will, to go get that situation sorted out. The thing we were talking about last time is one of the things that is sort of central to this letter, and it's central to the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, as he was going around planting churches, there was a party of what he calls the party of the circumcision, which are messianic Jews who are of the opinion that you've got to follow Moses, be circumcised, and all that kind of stuff in order to be saved. And they were going around to churches that Paul had planted, telling the people there, yeah, yeah, we know what this guy Paul said, but let us tell you what the real deal is, because we're real Jews and he's probably not, or words to that effect. So that will also be part of the letter to Titus, as it was to the letter to the Galatians. And circumcision at that point in the world history is a big deal because you have Gentiles who are coming into belief in Messiah and if in fact the circumcision party is correct and in order to be saved you must be circumcised that sort of limits your reach because an adult male being circumcised is not a pleasant thing you know at eight days old you can't do anything except cry and you know that rebellion doesn't last more than 20 minutes But as an adult, it's a big deal. And last time we talked about the fact that the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 revolved around just that question. Do we have the Gentiles become circumcised? And the answer from the Council of Jerusalem was no, they don't have to be circumcised. So that'll be a big deal in this letter. The other thing that is going on in the Roman Empire, the Jews were a legal religion. They were a long-established religion that had their own traditions, and it was called a religio licita, as in, you've all heard the word illicit, X, Y, or Z, 
licit, it means good, as opposed to illicit, which means bad. And so they were a religio licita, which means an approved religion. You had Gentiles who had the Holy Spirit coming into the synagogue because that's where the books were, and they wanted to find out about this God that they now wanted to worship. And so they would come into the synagogue, and that gave the Jews a problem. Not that the Gentiles wanted to study the books, that was perfectly fine. But the Gentiles also wanted to stop following the cult of Caesar. And that was not fine. Because for a Gentile not to follow the cult of Caesar would have been treason. And for the synagogue to bring them in without making them Jews and allow them to say, we don't have to sacrifice anymore because we're over here, would open the synagogue to charges of harboring traitors. So there was always this friction inside the synagogue. That, by the way, is what the book of Romans is all about, is this friction within the synagogue because you have these Holy Spirit-filled Gentiles who want to come in there, read the books, want not to sacrifice to Caesar, all those kinds of things. And the Jews say, well, okay, well, that's really cool, but we got a procedure to turn you into a Jew, which is what you have to be if you're going to take advantage of our special status. So this is a big deal in the empire. They have got an official place in the Roman Empire as a religious organization. It's not necessarily entirely self-serving. It's, there's a lot of self-serving going on, I agree. But it's also, we've got this position in the Roman Empire, and if we just sort of let anybody wander in and come under our umbrella and don't turn them into Jews, then we're going to have the Romans on top of us, which was the argument against Yeshua in the Gospels. You can say it's self-serving in the swamp, and I'm sure there's a lot of that, but it's also a practical political thing of, well, shoot, we don't want the Romans to come in here and slaughter us. So anyway, that's background. So now into Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Yeshua Messiah, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Sort of a standard Pauline introduction. Sort of hits on all the big ones. Salvation, eternal life. And interestingly, he says that he has been entrusted with the preaching by the command of God our Savior. And then in the next sentence he will say, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Messiah Yeshua, our Savior. So you have God, our Savior, and then you have Yeshua, our Savior, both in the header of the letter. I don't have any particular problem with that because I am firmly Trinitarian, and I firmly believe that God and Yeshua are one in the same being, just manifest to us in three different persons, which is the traditional Trinitarian view. A lot of messianics don't believe that, but I do. So now we're going to start going into the pastoral letter. That was all variations on the same thing in all of Paul's letters. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So to go back to our little Wikipedia article, St. Titus was the bishop of Crete. So this is where he is when this letter reaches him. And so now he's going to give qualifications for an elder, and they're very similar to those in Timothy, and indeed the ones that we use here. So verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And again, that's sort of standard. You get virtually the same thing in Timothy. Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So they are obviously itinerant teachers. They're coming through and teaching, and they are accepting offerings, if you will, for their teachings. And their teachings are upsetting the Gentile Christians. So they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Stop there for a minute. Apparently, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary out of the Dallas Theological Seminary, Paul is quoting from Epimenides, a Cretan prophet and philosopher from the 6th century B.C. who was widely believed to be a religious prophet. So this is an old prophet from Crete that he's quoting. Though the quotations may originally have referred to a particular lie, specifically that Zeus was buried in Crete, which is an especially offensive to those who believe Zeus was still alive, by Paul's day, the saying had become a proverb, which merely emphasized the low reputations of Cretans generally. So one of the things that we still call people is, you Cretan! That's where it comes from. And the way I would describe it is, these are now politically out of fashion, but we used to tell ethnic jokes all the time. And the world would be a lot healthier if we still did, quite frankly. You Cretan, you don't even realize that it has to do with Crete. It's just... You know, like you idiot. An idiot is the id, ego, the superego, and the id from Freud. So idiot is somebody who is trapped in his id. That's what the word literally means. So, I mean, all these words have origins. But anyway, Paul is basically saying that even the Cretans say that the Cretans always lie. And so let me do 12 again now that we know what we're talking about. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So what the circumcision party is apparently doing, in addition to demanding that Gentile believers be circumcised in order to be saved, they are also pushing oral Torah, is what I'm taking that to mean. So they're pushing Talmudic stuff, the stuff in the rabbinic writings. They're pushing all of that on the new Gentile believers. Verse 15, 
To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Strong letter to follow. Just as a side note, this thing to the pure, all things are pure, that was sort of the rallying cry of a cult, Middle Ages cult, and the idea that to the pure, all things are pure. So if you're pure in heart, you can do anything you want. And they then went into hippie communism, free love, just a whole bunch of stuff. And their thing was, we're good Christians because our hearts are pure. And all of this stuff we're doing to the pure, all things are pure. So we can do all of this stuff. One of the things that we haven't talked about in a long time, this might be a good place to talk about it, although I hesitate to take a bunny trail. One of the things that the Sunday church emphasizes is if you say the sinner's prayer, you have a fire insurance card, you go past the lake of fire, straight into, and you may be a, what's the phrase? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, you know, that kind of thing. It all sounds really very pious. What God says, and what Paul says, is that you will be judged on your works. So at the great white throne, when the books are open, what it says is everyone will be judged on his works. It doesn't say everyone will be judged on whether or not he said the sinner's prayer. Now, having said that, you have to make a profession of faith because you have to be in allegiance with the kingdom of God. And if you're not in allegiance with the kingdom of God, then works will not get you in there. But once you've entered the kingdom of God, you'll be judged based on your works. And in fact, the non-believers will be judged based on their works. Where's the great white throne? Revelation someplace. Let's go read it, rather than me paraphrasing. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is the criterion against which everyone is judged? What they have done. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not by your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works. Created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this still is talking about works. Now, now don't get me wrong. I am not saying that good works alone are sufficient to grant you salvation. You must change kingdoms. You must make an affirmative decision that I am no longer a member of the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of death. I am now a member of the kingdom of life, the kingdom of God, and I acknowledge that Yeshua is my Lord and Savior and my Master. We'll stop. Thereafter, what are you judged on? 
works. I don't see any point in having a judgment if the verdict is predetermined. There isn't any point in going to court if, if the verdict is already written. That's a waste of bandwidth. So the fact that these people are standing in front of God and their books are being opened and their works are being displayed, I personally believe that there is an opportunity for them to say, oh, I want to be in the kingdom of life. I don't want to be in the kingdom of death. But there are people that I have read who say, when I stand in front of the great white throne, I am going to say, no, I don't want to be part of your kingdom because I don't like the way you run this earth. And they've thought about it. This is not somebody that's sort of drifting. This is somebody who's thought about it. Everybody sins. We all do. The problem is when you sin and then you recruit others to sin with you. The point is, sin recruits. I mean, that's what's going on in the sexual deviant community right now. They're trying to get more people in with them because they feel better with lots of people. They recruit. So they are breaking one of the commandments and they are teaching others to do so. And the problem is the proselytization of sin, not so much screwing up on some commandment or other. The problem is proselytizing for that sin. It's just like what I try and do is teach what the scripture says. I do not hold myself up as being able to do all that scripture says. But I will not tell you, well, I'm sinning in this area, and come on, you know, let's all do it, because I do it and it's okay, and y'all come on with me. If I am teaching you to follow in the sin that I have, then it's worse for me than simply sinning. Chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Notice about us. So the deal here is get the community in order and stay in order so that the pagans and the Jews and everybody else that are around us, when they see us, will not have any reason to reproach us or any reason to gossip about us or any reason to give a bad report about us. Not to beat a dead horse, but I'll whip it one more time. Rome would routinely suppress groups that disturb good order and discipline. The Romans didn't really care who you worshipped so long as you didn't scare the horses. In other words, they were very big on civic order. So if a religious group became a problem in the civil society, the Roman authorities would come down on it. So this, you need to be above reproach, has two aspects. Aspect number one is your witness to people who might be interested in joining you. And aspect number two is make sure that you don't get so rowdy that the Romans put you out of business. Verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, non-argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. 
Now, slavery. One of the things in our society that non-believers throw at us is, all right, you Christians, tell us how we're supposed to treat our slaves. As in, your book authorizes slavery, and we all know how barbaric that is, so defend that to me. Defend slavery to me there, you Christian bigot. One of the things about slavery in the Bible is it contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. So in the case of a Hebrew slave, he was to be released at the end of the seven years. So in the case of a Hebrew, slavery was something you did, not something you are. In the case of a Gentile slave, you could purchase a Gentile slave and you could hand him down to your descendants and he was a slave forever. In other words, a Gentile slave is something he was, not something he did. However, there was nothing in the world to prevent a Gentile slave from saying, wow, this God that you serve seems to me like the real true God. And I want to be one of you. Now, I don't know if this was actually practiced. I'm talking theory now. And, and one of the things that happens in the prophets is that the Israelites were not treating their slaves properly. And it's one of the reasons they got sent into exile. But theoretically, if a Gentile slave decided to become a Hebrew and get converted, then he would be a Hebrew slave. Of course, you all know the history of the United States. The abolition movement in the United States was, how can we enslave our black brethren when they are, in fact, brothers with us in Messiah? And that was the thing that caused the abolition movement to happen in Great Britain and in the United States. So what Paul is saying here is, he's still talking about good order. And he's talking about slaves who have become believers. And he says in several places in his letters, if you were born a slave, fine, be a good slave. Because Rome was a slave-based society. In fact, that's one of the reasons they were so fiercely monogamous is because they got to fool around with slave girls or slave boys. And it's one of the reasons Paul is so adamant about sexual purity is because in the Roman economy, a slave had no control over his or her body. And they were used at the whim of their master. And so the idea then you have a slave who has no legal say over his body, what Paul is saying to the masters of those slaves is, you guys got to back off and now be pure. And you can't treat your slaves the way you have been. So anyway, what Paul is interested in here, as he is in this whole letter, is what I would call good order and discipline. In other words, we don't want this community to be a place where Roman slaves run and are sheltered from their masters even though that's what Torah says to do. But the problem is in Roman society, they will come and get them. You're a slave who is a Gentile in Rome. They've come to the knowledge of Messiah. They have come into the church to worship and so forth. And what Paul is saying is, you need to be a good witness in the society that you are coming out of. And that includes being a better slave, if you will, than you were before you came in. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua Messiah, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you have this old men behave this way, old women behave this way, young men behave this way, slaves behave this way, and sort of the cap on this is, all right, you're living in an evil age, in an evil place, just be well-behaved and await the coming of the Messiah. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Timothy, you need to man up and you need to say these things regardless of how difficult people say it is to hear. In other words, you've all been in churches a long time and there's always somebody that will get in your face when you preach a stiff sermon and be all offended and be saying, don't pay any attention to that. Backing up a second. One last thing I want to say and then we'll quit. Verse 14. Who gave himself, Yeshua, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice to redeem from all lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? It means not following Torah. So he's not in fact saying we're now under grace. Just go do whatever you want. It's all covered by the sinner's prayer. You said the sinner's prayer once and, and it's okay now and you're going to heaven and doesn't matter what you do. I mean, he doesn't say that. Paul never says that. And if you think Paul says that, you've misread Paul because the idea is God wants you to live a life in accordance with his Torah because his Torah is in accordance with the way he has organized his creation. And the example I use is you ever pet a dog? If you pet the dog from the head to the tail, it goes real smooth. If you try and pet the dog from the tail up to the head, it's kind of rough. So following Torah is like petting the dog from the head to the tail. Most people are trying to pet from the other end, and their life is pretty rough. And what Torah does is tells you how to live a life that goes as smoothly as life in this creation is going to go. And I said that very carefully because life does not always go smoothly even for those who do their best to follow Torah.